The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. It's the early 1880s, and the Paris Opera House is well into their new season when a masked man lurking in the shadows begins a reign of terror and mayhem that threatens to shut the theater down for good. Meanwhile, Christine Dubois, a beautiful young soprano, finds herself quickly moving up the ranks to become the opera's newest star. Could there be some connection between the two? And whatever happened to the violin player who mysteriously vanished after being unceremoniously ousted from the orchestra? And for God's sake, which of the men in her life will Christine choose to be with? Grab your mask and join us as we hunt for the Phantom of the Opera. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive! It's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am! You're insane. I tell you I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf! By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios classic monster series. Today we're talking about Universal's second stab at Phantom of the Opera. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host with the voice of an angel, monster, Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? I'm doing good, Dan. It's nice to be here. In color. In color, indeed. So Universal has, of course, remade several of their classic monster movies over the years. But this one's unique for us in that it's the first and only remake we'll encounter during this original era of their classic monster movies. And as you pointed out, it's also the only one that's in full color. In fact, it was only Universal's second color film ever. Really? Yeah, apparently the first color film that Universal made was Arabian Nights. I mean, because there's been a lot of great color films at this point, like Robin Hood and Wizard of Oz. Wild that they've only made two. Yeah, Arabian Nights premiered in 1942. So Universal was kind of late to the color game. I think a lot of that probably had to do with the fact that they were very frugal with their money at this time. They weren't looking to, to invest a shit ton of money into these movies if they could help it. I mean, that's just purely my own speculation, but I mean, that would make sense to me as to why Universal was late to color film. You know, I thought Phantom was an unusual choice for a color remake, considering all of that about Universal. But I mean, Phantom kind of needs to be big and expensive looking, right? I mean, it's big, it's operatic, it's grand in a lot of, like the story itself is very grand. So as I was reading up on it, it does actually make some kind of sense as to why this version plays out the way it does. But before we dive into all that, Mike, I'm curious to know what you thought about this version of Phantom, which steers away from the, the dark and creepy sensibilities of the original silent film and into a bright world of lavish technicolor musical numbers and even some romantic comedy. If I'm not mistaken, I think you were not too fond of this the first time you saw that. Is it, is it still the case? Yeah, that is correct. So I had seen this one before and, you know, I like it more this time, but 
I got to say, it just feels like another situation where this isn't really a horror film in my eyes. Like, it's just not a horror movie. And that's totally fine. But it also doesn't really feel like a universal film. To me, I was getting almost like those Disney vibes at times with the yep. music and, and the color. And I mean, it's still enjoyable for what it is. But yeah, you know, it's just it's not my favorite. There's a lot of stuff in here I like. It's actually pretty funny. It's very much like a comedy of manners this time around. You know, this feels like almost like very James Wales-esque in that sense where it's just only focusing on the upper class and how ridiculous they are and all of that melodrama that comes along with it. I can definitely see that. But I do have to say, like, this was a very smart choice for Universal to remake because, you know, a movie about opera in the era of sound film, it's a no-brainer, right? And it's like going back into their catalog, it's like, well, what, what, which one of these movies would we remake? Which one would we really put, like, the bells and whistles on? And it's like, well, let's go back to the beginning and take that movie that really deserves all of this opera music and this this color to make it stand out as like a grandiose production and everything. So I think that they had a good idea going forward with this production. It's just something feels a little off, you know, in this sequence of films that we've been watching. The color definitely is a shift. This should be an interesting show. I'm not going to, I'm not just going to be like ragging on it all episode. I'm just, I'm honestly going to, I'm just going to try and focus on what I really enjoyed about it. But it was disappointing when it dawned on me again, I was like, right, this one, this isn't going to be scary or anything like that. I'm kind of with you. I, th I do think that there's a lot to love about this movie. But yeah, I think a lot of it was wasted. Like the script for this movie is not particularly great. I think in a lot of ways uh, it relies on a familiarity with either the Gaston LaRue novel or the original 1925 silent film. You know, if you have seen A Phantom of the Opera or read the novel, you can get through this movie and, and it pretty effortlessly, right? It's not, it's not terribly complicated, but I think that in the production, you know, like the original Phantom, it was a tumultuous production. There was a a lot of script changes even down to the day there were a couple different groups of writers one team of people would be hired for this project and then they would all leave get replaced with a different group of people and so you've got these different scripts all sort of coming in and going out and some stuff's kept some stuff is cut out i think that this movie cuts a lot of corners in terms of the narrative and if they had really committed to telling phantom of the opera then i think that everything would have come together in a way that that was more satisfactory uh, yeah i think the issues i have here are really on a script level and to some degree I think that the songs played out in their entirety really dragged down the pace of this movie I mean this this is a 90 minute film it should have been an hour and 15 minutes maybe less even with the colors and the big sets and lavish costumes and all of that I think this movie doesn't require 90 minutes these songs really really grind everything to a halt and uh, and so I would definitely cut those out but I do think that on a technical level I think it's very good I think sorry, the directing here is, is really strong there's there's one particular sequence in like the first couple minutes that I think is brilliant and so yeah there's a lot to like here and it's really disappointing that as a Phantom of the Opera production that's where it fails right it's, it's not a great Phantom movie and there are very few good Phantom movies as far as I'm concerned I think that the 1950s Hammer production owes a lot to this one unfortunately I think I like it a little more than I like this one, maybe just because I like Hammer aesthetic a lot. But to this day, I don't, I don't think anything has really topped the original 1925 silent film. I think I'm right next to you. This one, it's funny because the movie that I 
feel is inspired by this the most is like Phantom of the Paradise. Like there's right. a lot of that in this movie. But yeah, it's just a strange adaptation, especially just from what we know. And it's, it's like the Phantom Begins. But he also ends like it's strange that they didn't want to try and like stretch this out over a trilogy or multiple movies. Like there's a great shot at the end of this movie, but it's not like his hand comes out of the grave. You know, right. like I'm waiting for them to, to finally do that. And this would have been great to just be like, nope, this is just we're, we're just beginning. But to be sort of this weird one and done, this one off, it sort of seems outside of the universe so to speak like drifting out on its own it comes across as kind of like experimental in that sense to me because they never really do this again they go straight back to their formula or whatever and also since they just sort of shifted gears and started doing monster mashes and stuff like to kind of make a a left turn it seems and and put this out it could also just be trying to reach a different audience people who maybe they see as more kind of sophisticated or it could also come across as like hey this is you know like we've been saying this is a good uh story to use these gimmicks of sound and color in the medium and stuff but without the music this is as long as all the other universal monster movies so it's surprising they didn't use that extra time or tag on an extra 15 or 20 minutes to develop the story out more you know i wish the script was stronger because like you said like the The production, the direction, the acting, like all this stuff is fun and enjoyable. It's just not the best Phantom movie. Yeah, well, you actually touched on something that's right on the money. I don't think Universal was really thinking about their monsters when they made this. I think that they were more so interested in making something that would be crowd-pleasing, something familiar. You know, they had a big hit with the original silent film, and so they had a built-in audience, and they didn't really have to take a whole lot of risks. I mean, they're, they're, they're pumping a lot of money into this to shoot it in color. It makes perfect sense to me that they would pick something as popular as Phantom of the Opera. And it would explain all of the cast. Like, it's not filled with the same people we've seen for, what, 17 movies now? And this is the 18th episode. This was definitely approached from a different point of view. And I think that it is really only included in Universal's box set. When when you buy the Universal Monster box set, they include this movie. They don't include the 1925 silent film. I'm sure it has something to do with home entertainment distribution rights and all of that. I think the original Phantom's still in the public domain. But Universal doesn't include that film in their collection. They only include this one. So I think that it's really just included because technically the Phantom of the Opera kickstarted the monster thing and so they include it here in this set. It really, like The Invisible Woman, kind of deserves to sit outside separate from all of these other films. But because it's included, we're covering it here, of course. Yeah, it's interesting to how they just are like, yeah, opera. I don't know any of this opera stuff, but it really made me want to kind of like figure it out. And if it had any deeper meaning to the subtext of the story going on, I don't really think it does. I think it's just like Universal being like, we can do this. Like, look at this. If we wanted to, we could do opera, but like, we don't. We prefer to do monster stuff and things. So I almost wonder if this was a bit of like showing off and being like, we could do color movies. Movies. It's like we just don't want to. Like, that's just not our style. And, like, that's kind of also what it came down to for me as well was like parts of this feel like a satire and like a joke or something like that. But it'd be a very expensive joke if that were the case. <laughs> but I was just trying to find angles in which to sort of more enjoy what I was seeing. 
personally, I've seen a, a couple of operas. I enjoy opera. I can't say I know a ton about it, even with my own personal musical and stage, you know, theater uh, experience. I don't really know a ton about opera, but I have experienced a couple. And this just doesn't work as an opera, at least not in the way that, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber approached it much later with his musical interpretation. But I, I would say on a narrative level, it does kind of qualify as kind of a soap opera. You've got, you know, this beautiful young woman who's torn between two men. There's high drama. There's all these different elements that I feel like should be right at home in an opera. You know, very broad, simplistic. There's relationship stuff. There's, again, high drama. So yeah, I think on a script level, it does work as an opera. But musically, this just doesn't do it for me. If they had attempted to go full tilt opera, it would have been a very different movie, but maybe more successful of a film overall. This thing is very confused as, as to what it wants to be, but it is still a lot of fun despite a lot of that confusion, I think. You mentioned a term that kind of just got me wondering, and that's soap opera. I think they were on the radio around this time. Obviously, there's no television, but like, I'm pretty sure soap operas were a thing, and maybe that was what they were tapping into. Maybe they were like opera, soap opera, like, let's combine those two sort of forces and see what happens. And, you know, it would have been amazing if this was an actual opera, but you're right, it's not start to finish they're not singing the movie. They work at an opera. Like yep, they're yep. actors and stuff. Like it's more about backstage shenanigans and things like that. So yeah, I agree. It would have been amazing if it was more of like the Andrew Lloyd Webber thing, but I, they're not there yet. You know, I wasn't expecting that, but for what we do get, it is good music. It's just, it's so sort of like sporadic. Like I was saying, I, I wish I knew if it had a deeper meaning or anything like that, because it just kind of seems like do this song, do that song. This opera, like, you know, I just wish there was more of a, a meaning behind what they were singing. Right, yeah. The music doesn't really advance the narrative in the way that it should if they're going to use the entire song. So if we had gotten, like, pieces of these operas, that would have made for a more enjoyable experience. But here, like, they want to showcase these singers. Again, these actors are not our usual stable of actors. These are people who had musical experience or opera experience. And so they really want to showcase that talent. And so we get, like... I don't know, it feels like five full opera songs and like the songs themselves don't do anything to the story. They're just there because we're in an opera. So yeah, I think if the music had a little more uh, more of a purpose as opposed to what we get here, it might've been, again, a little better. Yeah, I think we're in agreement in that a lot of this stuff is good. It's just not assembled in a way that makes for a completely enjoyable movie. There's no denying that these people were like uber talented. I think a lot of this comes down to the script and I think the script and some of these editorial choices, maybe it was the directorial choices, you know, to keep all these songs in there. I don't know. But I mean, everything else in this movie from a technical standpoint, I think is absolutely brilliant. And, and we'll get into like, they do get recognized for that, which I think is great. So actually, that's good segue. Let's get into it. Yeah. Talk of remaking Phantom began as early as 1935 when Carl Lemley Jr. was announced as its producer. So we're going all the way back to the Lemley era. Wow. It didn't get made, of course. A lot of that had to do with the financial situation at Universal. We know Carl Jr. was kind of putting Universal into this big giant hole with these movies that cost a fortune to make. So again, it was never made, but allegedly it would have been made by Russian filmmaker Anatole Litvak and written by William P. Lipscomb with none other than Boris 
Karloff starring as the Phantom. Now in this version, the story would have been updated. It would have been set modern day, not 1800s, the way the, the previous two versions had been. It would have been modern day and the Phantom would have worn a mask to hide combat injuries sustained during the First World War. And the unmasking scene would have revealed that he had no actual disfigurement and that his injuries were all psychological. Interesting, that's a take. Yeah, I think that decision was sort of based on this idea that there would be people sitting in the audience who had been overseas and experienced the horrors of war and come back with disfigurement. Yeah. Instead of throwing that in their faces, I think the idea was to, to make it sort of uh, sympathetic to their plight and, and not actually show disfigurement, you know, kind of make it more of a PTSD kind of a, a mental thing, which I think would have been interesting. Unlike what they do in this movie, literally throwing it in his face. Yeah. Now, in October 1940, Universal announced plans to revive Phantom to be produced by Joseph Pasternak and directed by Henry Coster, neither of whom had any real experience with horror films from what I could gather. Deanna Durbin, known as the Queen of the New Universal, would have starred as Christine, and Broderick Crawford would have played the title role of the Phantom. Months later, it was announced that with Deanna Durbin under suspension at the time, Universal was planning to shift gears and rework Phantom as a spoof for Abbott and Costello. Wow. Already? Yeah, I couldn't find more information on that, but we could have had like our first Abbott and Costello meet the Phantom of the Opera. It could have been as early as 1943. That's crazy because the guy who ends up directing this has done a couple Abbott and Costello movies already. So, I mean, that's wild that they were already considering that. But by September 1941, Universal seriously began production on what would be a deluxe Technicolor production to be shot on the same set as the 1925 original. And with the harsh realities of World War II currently dampening viewers' taste for the macabre, this version of Phantom was envisioned as a big-budget costume movie that would play more like a musical than a horror film with the hopes of drawing in a broader audience audience. So you were right on the money about all of that. But what I think is interesting here is that I know that it was a frugal move, which is, you know, Universal's MO at this time. But like, I love that they're using the same theater set that they had built for the 1925 movie, which I, I love that they're just recycling sets. And I love that that set in particular was still in good enough shape that they could reuse it here. They were holding on to these things for a long time and just getting their money's worth. Yeah, I mean, they can't use footage stock footage from the original not for this one yeah <laughs> i thought this would be a good opportunity like before we get too far into this take a quick look at color film processing i'm not an expert on this and mike i know you know some as well so i'm not going to dwell too much on this you know we're not like film historians we don't have firsthand experience with film processing but i did find uh, some information here just to go over the broad strokes kind of bring us up to date onto what's been going on with color film uh, at least up to this point now, we know color films have existed in various forms since the late 1800s. You know, for his iconic 1902 science fiction film, A Trip to the Moon, Georges Méliès employed a painstaking process which involved an assembly line of hundreds of workers who had to paint each frame by hand. And then in 1908, there was a short film, A Visit to the Seaside, which utilized the kinema color process. It was a two-color additive color process which involved photographing and projecting a black and white film behind alternating red and green filters. And we've even touched on the hand Scheigel color process, I believe, which was used in the 1925 Phantom of the Opera, particularly in the scene when the Phantom follows Christine up to the tower of the Opera House with the big red costume, the flowy costume. So yeah, that used the hand Scheigel color process. In 1940, 
2014, Technicolor was born, and they began toying around with new methods of color film processing. They used two projectors to try and create color through a prism. They even tried to imprint color on film stock, which proved to be too costly. Unfortunately, everything that they were trying was just too expensive and would require special projection equipment for theaters. But in 1932, Technicolor finally cracked the code using dye transfer methods in a three-color film to create the most vibrant colors filmgoers had ever seen. They began with a Disney short called Flowers and Trees and eventually perfected this process with The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind, both released in 1939. There are a couple of videos that illustrate a lot of this way better than I can, and I'm going to include those in the show notes for anybody who's interested in learning more about specifically Technicolor. These videos do get into those other forms of color processing. It's really cool stuff. In September 1942, almost two years since the film was first announced, more news came out that the production was delayed again due to the Technicolor plant being tied up with war footage, meaning bookings for studio productions had to be made way in advance. Director Henry Coster was also busy working on a musical comedy at the time. Because of these delays, by November, Universal eventually replaced Joseph Pasternak with good old George Wagner. Um, Henry Coster was replaced with house director Arthur Lubin, who had quite literally directed every sort of film you can think of. Westerns, adventure films, horror films, comedies, musicals, you name it. Perhaps the most noteworthy for this show is his work with Abbott and Costello, which you reference, Mike. Uh, he directed films such as Buck Privates and Hold That Ghost. Now, the script, written by Samuel Hoffenstein and Eric Taylor, was based on a 1941 treatment written by Hans Jacobi. In the treatment, Claudin is actually Christine's father, who had abandoned his daughter, leaving her to be raised by his late wife's family. When adult Christine encounters Claudin, she falls under his spell and is coached to be a world-class opera star. When his identity is revealed, he is shot to death by police on the stage of the opera house at the end of the film. Wow. I'm glad they didn't go that route with, like, the domineering father stuff right. or whatever. <laughs> By the time that script was finished, it was so overloaded with family history, George Wagner and Arthur Lubin made drastic cuts to it, leaving only a slight suggestion uh, to that father-daughter relationship, which explains some of the awkwardness between Claudin and Christine in the finished film. Yeah, it's still, we'll, we'll have to talk about that a little bit. It's still very weird. Now, as we talked about, we have mostly new actors. There were too many characters in this one to go through all of them, unfortunately. So I'm just going to stick to the principal cast members, and then we can address specific actors as we get through the movie later on. To help downplay the horror elements of the story, Universal cast a number of actors with musical experience, beginning with the blonde baritone Nelson Eddy as the romantic lead, even giving him top billing, which I thought was interesting. It was rumored that invisible agent John Hall was considered to play Anatole, but I, I couldn't find anything to substantiate that. So, I mean, this guy who, who's playing Anatole Garon, like, insane voice on this man. Yep. I mean, not just him, but the Suzanne Foster does as well. Like, they hold these notes yes. that are just incredible. I was losing my mind. Like, you can just, you just have to appreciate the talent that these guys have. This guy's great. I love, I thought he was hilarious, too. I, I can't wait to talk about some moments in this movie with him. Yeah, just about everybody in the principal cast, with the exception of our Phantom, has some incredible comic timing. They really lended themselves well to the comedy here. And so it works really well, even if it's a little bit strange to be appearing in a Phantom of the Opera movie, you know? Right. I mean, it's not quite Mel Brooks or anything like that, but I mean, it is very funny at times. Yes, 100%. Now, supposedly uh, Nelson Eddy hated that he had to dye his blonde hair brown. So a special dye was used so that he could wash it out at the end of each day. I thought that was interesting. He could have just worn a wig, maybe. 
maybe, but all right. <laughs> Susanna Foster, who plays Christine, was an 18-year-old singer whose Paramount contract had recently expired. According to her, she said, quote, There was a man named Charles Spears who was in the publicity department. He went to Universal and worked in the casting area in an executive position. When they were looking for someone for Phantom, he suggested me. I met Arthur Lubin by accident at a mutual friend's home, and he became interested in me because I sang. Composer Eddie Ward remembered me from MGM. So when I went out for the audition for George Wagner, they right away wanted me. Boom. That was it. You said she was 18? Yes. She's 18 in this movie? As far as I can tell. Wow. Incredibly mature presence. Like, I would have guessed, like, she, you know, not not on looks or anything, but just on the way she carried herself. I was like, oh, yeah, she's like, she's been acting forever or something. You know, like, she's just such a natural. Yes. Again, with that voice, like, wherever that voice came from, maybe heaven? I don't know. It's insane. <laughs> yeah, she was born in 1924. So she would have been about 18, 19 when this movie came out. We've got Edgar Barrier as Raul. I really love Edgar Barrier in this movie. This is my favorite role, I think, in both fans, like just the idea of this cop. I love it. He was an actor of stage and screen prior to this, as well as a member of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater. Oh, okay. Which I love. I assume a lot of these performers have radio experience, but I love that Edgar Barrier was specifically a member of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater. I wonder if he's in Citizen Kane somewhere. But I love this guy, like the Viscount Raoul Dabeur de Sûreté. Like, he's so ridiculous. Just like, it takes itself so seriously, but he's also just like so in love. I I just love the idea that like he's enamored with Christine but he's also trying to like do his job at the same time and he's just like fumbling both yeah not my favorite Raul but I do love this performance you know I, I do think that it works well in the film good mustache great mustache yes Apparently, he was known for playing suave villains over the course of a lot of his career. Often, he would be opposite John Hall, our invisible agent. Uh, it's funny because there is actually, now that I think of it, maybe one correlation between a moment of opera and a part, another part of the movie. It's like he's the cop who's usually wearing his uniform. And at one moment in the movie, Garon is singing in uniform to Christine. So maybe there's some sort of like, you know, play going on there or something. But there's a lot of that winking and joking yes. as they're singing and stuff. So I wonder. Yeah. Lon Chaney Jr. lobbied hard for the role of Eric Claudin. However, Universal was really not interested in him. They wanted Charles Lawton because of his work in the 1939 sound remake of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Wow, that would have been crazy. But yeah, this is not a Lon Chaney role. I'm sorry. As much as I love him and as good an actor as he is, like I could not see him. This guy has to be sort of like smaller. You know yeah. what I mean? Yep. You have to believe he goes that big because he comes from a place so small. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I didn't think about it in that regard, but you're right. Lon Chaney, if only because he's too tall, I think he would have made a horrible phantom. But I, I just don't think that the character is necessarily, I don't think it suits his skill set. I just don't see it. Obviously, he, he's an incredible actor, and we see it every time he plays Lawrence Talbot. But yeah, I just don't see him as a convincing phantom. He doesn't really do like maniacal stuff, like take over the world kind of stuff it's always like you bring up like he's trying to like off himself you know yeah <laughs> it's like the last thing he wants to do is keep going instead of like control everything and he's also not in my opinion he's not very good in roles that require him to be kind of 
romantic. I know that the Phantom is not a traditionally romantic character, but especially in modern interpretations, he kind of has this romanticism to him because of his obsession. And I just don't think Lon Chaney has that quality either. So yeah, I think he has many skills. I just don't think this is the role for him. Like, I don't even know that I would love the Charles Lawton Phantom, but I think he was a more well-versed actor and um, had, a, had a bigger range than Chaney. And I think he would have at least done a good job. Yeah, like I think it seems like they might be going for who else could take the makeup or something. Right. You know, like you watch that Hunchback movie and like uh, it, it's almost like Colin Farrell Penguin style, like the, the way the makeup interacts with the face so perfectly and how he can act under it and all that kind of stuff. Like it's it's remarkable. So maybe they were going that route. Like he already yeah. played like this deformed guy um, and he did it with like a lot of gravitas and stuff but such a different character the hunchback you know so again i think you might be right i think they made the right choice on january 7th universal eventually announced that the new phantom would be claude rains who had just been nominated for an oscar for casablanca so casablanca had come out he'd been nominated so he was a big movie star at the time he's not really uh in it that much really? <laughs> I was surprised I may have an idea as, as to why it's great to see him back you know he was invisible man we didn't really get to see him there but he was Wolfman's dad talk about some Lon Chaney Jr. so like you get a little sort of hit universal monster history with him so it's nice to see at least one familiar face and especially his familiar face yeah I mean anytime I see him in a movie I'm instantly interested you know like I sit up he's got a, a magnetic presence you know and I don't even care if the movie's that good I know he's going to give it his all. And he, he delivers here with, with the material they give him to work with. Yeah. Did, is there anything in there about him actually playing the violin? Yes. Yes, I'm getting to that. Oh, okay. Sorry to get ahead. That's right. <laughs> now, at, at this time, his contract was up with Warner Brothers. And the reason he decided to do this movie was just he did it as like a freelance, right? So I know that at this time, a lot of actors were contracted with specific studios. But in, in moments like this, when they were in between contracts, they could go off and do like one movie here, one movie there, whatever. And certainly Oscar. Oscar nominee could pick and choose projects should he want to. Yeah, and he's already got a relationship with the studio as well, so that's really nice. He must have been able to like work something out with that. Now, according to Arthur Lubin, quote, Claude Rains was my only choice, and he was wonderful. He was a very difficult actor, very precise. He wanted to be correct. Weeks before we photographed his scenes, he practiced the piano and the violin. He was really perfect. And he was very difficult to direct, but he was worth listening to. Most of his suggestions were very valuable. I would say to him, well, Claude, I don't agree with you, but we'll shoot it your way. And then we'll shoot it my way and see. He forgot the director in those days had the final cut, end quote. That's a trick you still hear about to this day. We'll do it both ways, you know? And yeah. then, then the director just uses his take. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a prima donna Arthur Lubin was not, but he had a shit ton of experience. So he knew, I, I mean, he must have known had, or had some idea what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. I think he also understood that there was no way he was going to talk Claude Rains out of something he felt adamant about. So I think that's just a pro move to handle an actor who feels very strongly like that. And then uh, Susanna Foster also had something to say about Claude Rains. She said, quote, I thought Rains was wonderful. He was a little reserved, but he had that vicious little twinkle in his eye that was so cute. He got back so much working with him. Wow, that's great to hear too. No, no Lon Chaney Jr. pranking on the set. No, <laughs> no, none of that kind of stuff. No, no one sort of at odds with each other, putting any strain on the production. You can kind of feel it. This being more comedic, it's way lighter and it has that sort of breezy, airy sort of vibe between all the opera. 
Well, I remember when we did our Invisible Man episode, I remember reading that Gloria Stewart had sort of the opposite to say about Claude Rains. Even in 1933, you know, he was difficult to work with and she was not very happy about her experience working with him. But here we have Susanna Foster saying kind of the opposite. And maybe it was because she was 18 and she was kind of new. So maybe some of it's that, but I like hearing he was enjoyable to be around and not just a difficult actor. Yeah, and it's been about a decade or so so you know he's done a lot of stuff and he's just coming off of this oscar nomination stuff for casablanca and everything so he's just probably in a different place and it's you know was it him who or maybe it was peter laurie but i remember there was just like a group of actors back in the day back in the day you know when they were starting out doing these monster movies that were just like oh that's kind of slumming it or whatever but now it almost feels like well i just really worked my ass off hard in a couple films and this and that and like maybe i could go over there and just sort of take it easy for a movie yeah so by the time it was ready for release universal had put about a million dollars into it the exact figure is tough to figure out universal was claiming a lot more than they probably actually spent i saw a couple different versions but like they all sort of hover around a million dollars as i mentioned before they shot much of it in the same opera house set from the original lon chaney film when that was constructed it cost Universal $500,000 plus another $100,000 to soundproof. You know, like I said, it, was, it had been well maintained over the years, which is good. And all the art director Alexander Galitzin had to do was have it repainted, regilded, and strung with new curtains. Excellent. That's great cost cutting measures, you know, and like that's also nice to include like the history of it with the technicolor it doesn't even look like the same theater like if you didn't know right right i don't think you would guess that it was the same set no i mean it's shot so differently with the camera movement and and, and everything like that yeah absolutely they're getting a lot of bang for their buck there now the original chandelier however was irreparably damaged when shooting the original silent film and so universal purchased some check crystal and had it recreated by a local glass factory 20 thousand pieces were used to create the new 11 foot by 14 foot chandelier and this time it was attached to a wire when it was dropped stopping short of the floor and was then disassembled so the pieces could be scattered around this way it could be reassembled and then stored for future use so like <laughs> they are definitely learning from their mistakes which is nice to see as for the mask Claude Rains was worried that his image as a leading man would suffer if his face were completely obscured. So it was decided that he would wear a half mask. And with men coming back from the war, potentially with facial injuries, it was decided that the Phantom would not have particularly gruesome makeup. I suspect that this was also in part because Rains was so opposed to appearing hideous on camera, just for the same reasons. He didn't want it to affect his uh, casting in the future. Right. I read somewhere that he only agreed to shoot the reveal one time. So Arthur huh. Lubin had to hide a second camera on set just to get the most out of that sequence. Interesting. But it's not a half mask in the movie. Well, it is in that it covers the top half of his face, his mouth. Oh, okay. Yeah. The top instead of not the bottom. I, I always think, you know, he's wearing it over the left side of his face. Right, right, right. Because he is basically, this is like Two-Face. Like yeah. everything from how he gets scarred to what he looks like. And no complaint. It's actually very grotesque. There's something about like the lack of what's there or like the minimal amount yeah. of what they did. When it happens, I'm still shocked, you know, because <laughs> it's the buildup and everything. But that's interesting to hear that they were so sensitive about all of that. It's 
it's nice to hear. Yeah, it's definitely not as gruesome as it was intended. You know, we're going to get to that scene eventually, but you know, he gets a full face full of acid, and yet when the when the mask is pulled off, it's only the side of his face that was uh, scarred. So I think a lot of that had to do with Claude Rains just not wanting his total face obscured. So they had to pivot during production, and then okay, finally we're just going to do the one side. Yeah, the original Phantom was scary. You know, he's like missing the nose and and all this kind of thing but this guy this one is like freddy krueger and it's in color it would be probably for the audience more shocking i think to be like whoa it does look pretty bad now that i think about it (laughs) (laughs) so our favorite stick in the mud joseph breen head of the production code administration was less interested in the horrifying makeup than he was about susanna foster's cleavage on may 21st (laughs) 1943 the censors rejected phantom due to a number of unacceptable breast shots of christine in her dressing room really yeah i mean some of it managed to stay in i'm trying to watch the movie through Joseph Breen's eyes and like what would be acceptable, what would be unacceptable. And there's definitely some moments in there where I'm like, I'm surprised he left it in. Well, I mean, you got the fantastic Vera West wardrobe once again, so maybe she's the one being subversive here. <laughs> or maybe that's how they got some of it through too. They're like, well, you could buy this gown in a store down the street from the movie theater. How is this offensive? In any case, the suggested cuts were made and Universal released the film three months later. All right. Oh, man. Imagine if, like, the cut footage is, just, like, full frontal. Like, <laughs> what are you thinking? I mean, maybe James Whale could have gotten away with something like that, but uh, I don't know. I think by 1943, Joseph Breen had a firm hold on what was acceptable for general audiences. Definitely. We, we sort of talked about this already. We've got very little opera like actual opera appearing in this movie. In fact, only one, Marta, which is the first one we see, is a legitimate opera. And that's only because it was in the public domain. What do you mean is a legitimate opera? Like they made up the other ones, like the Russian one and the other thing. It's all it's all like concocted. Yes. So a lot of the other music, it was music from other sources that was sort of retooled, you know, to sound like an opera. And so that's probably why some of that music sounded familiar to you is because it wasn't from an opera it was like other classical music holy crap because i like wrote down watching the movie i was like oh i know that song it's from this opera but now i find out that opera's made up and they just are like cobbling together things from here and there yeah. to make their own operas and stuff that's kind of brilliant yeah i mean the universal claimed that the war made it difficult to get copyright clearances for more operas but i think we all know how cheap they were at the time i, I at least suspect that it had more to do with them trying to save some money so yeah that's why only one real opera actually appears in the movie and it's that third act of Marta at the beginning but all the more reason then to write a new opera based on the Phantom of the Opera and lace it throughout this movie you know like you you already are spending the money to kind of convert music from like one style to another who knows if there's working or not I can't tell but like I don't know if this is good opera sometimes (laughs) but like why not just set all the more reason to just like write your own shit like that would have been incredible then you could have had have had it meant more and propelled the plot more and actually saved some time probably you know yep. told some of this story on stage more well the one real opera that actually does have some bearing on the plot was used in the original silent film it was Faust. Right. You know, they, they couldn't license Faust for this production or they didn't want to spend the money. Who knows what it was? But they did find a way to incorporate Faust 
into the final scene. I don't know if you caught that, but as Christine is uh, heading back into her dressing room, she's got the long blonde wig and it's suggesting that she was portraying Margarita in Faust. And then she goes back out into the hallway to, to greet her public. There's a man standing in the crowd like further back who is clearly made up to look like Mephistopheles. So, oh, interesting. I missed so yeah, that. like they were able to work Faust in without legitimately working Faust in. Interesting. I mean, it's just strange because part of the plot revolves around Claudine's concerto. Yeah. You know, so it's like you took the time and effort to do that and it's quite lovely. Do just more of that. And yeah. like, you don't have to call it Faust on screen you call it you know the deal with the devil or something like yeah, that yeah. but you write it in french and then, <laughs> like, get away with it that's wild i love that trivia about this movie about the music never would have imagined so phantom was released on august 19th 1943 believe it or not too much fanfare it broke box office records and earned five oscar nominations ultimately winning two of them one for best color photography and one for best color art direction wow that's a that's impressive yeah. you know it is gorgeous the color is just so insanely lush and rich and uh i i do miss the shadows though like yeah, i right. just gotta say like i miss we get some shadows of the phantom and stuff but it's like wow just to see those like makes me realize how much i miss cast shadows on people <laughs> yeah i will say that as beautiful as this movie is it again does not really feel appropriate for phantom i feel like the phantom needs more shadows more darkness this is like phantom in the daylight you know and it just feels weird <laughs> phantom in the park <laughs> <laughs> so the other nominations that it got was best set decoration best sound recording and best scoring of a musical picture those music nominations were probably pretty prestigious at the time and this still holds up wherever the recordings were that they used to make this dvd that i have like they're just there's no pop or nothing like they're just so clear it's crystal clear with the sound recording in particular this movie is very important in terms of how sound was recorded for movies you know in the way that they would record it so as a scene during a song would be cut up and, and the perspective would change you know they had to record the sound in different ways so that it would sound natural to the audience right because sometimes you're watching the opera happen sometimes it's kind of off to the side maybe your camera is in the wings and so you're not going to hear it directly i should say this is a good time to bring this up if you have the blu-ray there's a commentary track done by scott mcqueen and he goes into so much detail there's just not enough time for us to cover it here on this show but definitely worth checking out if you want to know more about this movie the sound recording at the very least you know he, he'll get into like all the different cast members and, and who they were and what they were doing at the time but like he really goes in depth into the, you know the color filmmaking the sound recording all of the technical things that make this movie so great it's definitely worth checking out if you have the time and the inclination to do that wow yeah i didn't even consider how not just the logistics of shooting a film in sound at this time still but also in color at the same time and then an opera so like it's singing so it's not just dialogue volume like you know 
normal talking voices, you also got to take into account these people singing at the top of their lungs mm-hmm. and making sure none of that is distorted or anything. And then you're right, like, it didn't even occur to me, like, when people move around the stage and how that changes because of atmosphere and everything. Oh, that's insane. Wow, man. These guys are smart. I wish I had known about this back in our sound design class and back in college. We had to pick a scene and uh, sort of break down the sound design. If I had known about this, forget about it. Well, it's also so impressive because of how much this camera is moving. Yes. Just to sync all of this stuff together must have been a nightmare. Oh, 100%. Okay, so Universal immediately began work on a sequel, which would bring back all of the principal cast. Unfortunately, Claude Rains had absolutely no interest in doing that and signed a new contract with Warner Brothers. Well... Do you need him? It is Son of the Phantom, or you have him even more scarred in the second film because a freaking building fell on his face. If it were any other monster, then that's exactly what Universal would have done. But I, I feel like they wanted to keep some level of prestige on the Phantom name. They did go ahead with the sequel, but they sort of reworked it, right? So it's not really a sequel. What's that? So the sequel became like a thinly veiled remake called The Climax, which was released in 1944. What? It starred Susanna Foster. Uh, Nelson Eddy would have returned, but he was replaced with Turin Bay from The Mummy's Tomb. Uh-huh. And Boris Karloff played the, like, non-Phantom. See, that's the thing. Like, if Karloff wants to be the Phantom, just make him the Phantom. Talk about prestige. Like, it's maybe the one guy, aside from Claude Rains, that could bring it more prestige than before. I'm at least glad to know that they were trying to reboot this and make it a series one way or the other, and they made this weird sort of, like, pseudo-sequel in the way that, like, Soldier is to Blade Runner, I guess. Right. I just looked up the climax. Here's the synopsis. A demented physician becomes obsessed with a young singer whose voice sounds similar to his late mistress. Directed by George Wagner, written by Kurt Siodmak. Dude, it's the crew. Yeah, now it's starting to get, it's becoming another standard universal horror movie, right? Shot in black and white. Black and white. Yeah, okay. Maybe maybe that was it. We don't have Claude Rains. We don't have color. Why call it Phantom anymore? I read something about a, a radio broadcast. Like a, like they someone uh, adapted Phantom of the Opera for the radio and they got everybody from this movie to come reprise their roles except Claude Rains. And so Claude Rains was replaced with Basil Rathbone. Well, there you go. So <laughs> I'd watch that. Man, there's like, yeah, there's a whole crew of guys who could step in. You know, not that I, don't get me wrong, I love Claude Rains, but like, you know, he didn't go on to play the next Invisible Man. They didn't bring him back for the Wolfman meets Frankenstein or anything. You know what I'm saying? Like, sure. everybody is sort of an interchangeable to me. From my fan point of view, it's disappointing, but so curious that's like another crazy trivia thing about this that it has that bizarre sort of sequel remake thing yeah i mean i I can't blame him too much i mean claude rains went on to do all sorts of other great stuff so like i can't again can't blame him but it would have been cool so that is kind of all i've got for background stuff like i said the the disc if you have it if you have the collection definitely check out some of the uh the extras on there because it'll go way more in detail i you know i wish we had time for it, but we can't record every little bit of minutia for Family Opera, unfortunately. So without further ado, I think we should get into the movie. Okay. So this opens with the title card. We're used to seeing the Universal Globe, but we don't have one here. I was very surprised, a little bit disappointed if I'm being honest. 
But I found out Universal never bothered to shoot a color version of their globe sequence. Oh, man, because I was definitely expecting a brand new opening logo. But instead, on my DVD, I had this modern logo from the 90s or something like that. I was like, this ain't right. Yeah, I think mine will open with the modern day sequence, which I think they all do. But there's no like old timey universal globe at the top of this. And that's really all it is. They just never shot it in color. So they didn't have it and they didn't put one in there. So it just opens on the curtain with bright gold letters, Phantom of the Opera. We get all of our credits, so many actors. And then we get the incredible opening sequence. I'm not sure exactly how many minutes it is. I didn't time it. But we get this moving camera that just sweeps through this opera house. It introduces all of the main characters without a single word of dialogue, which I think is the coolest thing about it. You know, it opens right on Claudan. We get the whole orchestra. Then the curtain goes up. We see Anatole. The camera moves up past the chandelier on like a big crane, right? Sweeps over to the boxes to the right. And we are introduced to Raul. I love this whole opening sequence. It sets up everything so well as far as like where everybody is sort of socially in the movie too. I love seeing Claude Rains down in the orchestra pit and he's always going to be looking up and admiring Christine who's going to be on stage. But also on stage, you have Anatole who is obviously, you know, the leading man and stuff. But then, oh man, the way that camera just sort of drifts around the entire opera house. The way it lands on Raul and... Oh my God, it's so cool. He like is all around backstage. Yeah, that music cue when he opens the curtain. I, I love that music cue. It's so perfect. It, it goes all the way around and, you know, we get our first really long note that is mm-hmm. held. It's just such a great punctuation on the entire sequence. Yeah, and we do get sort of the relationships, right? You sort of touched on that. Every man in this scene has eyes for Christine. And so like without any dialogue, we kind of know that all of these guys, these are the main characters and they are all interested in Christine in one way or the other. So brilliant filmmaking here. So Claude Rains plays Claudin, right? So it's just, it's weird that it's Claudine played by Claude Rains. So yeah. I'm going to get that mixed up a lot this episode. <laughs> I'm just letting everybody know. But I love how right from the beginning here, he's messing up and the conductor catches it. And yeah, it's just, it's already telling the story. And the way Anatole is like eye acting around the stage, there's going to be a lot of that throughout the movie too, where like he'll be on stage and Christine will come out and he'll be like, oh, okay. And you could totally tell by his demeanor has changed. It's like, I love that stuff. I think the most about the musical sequences. They're trying to tell a story through the mannerisms, but I just wish the music was also propelling the plot as well. Yeah. Now you touched on one thing that will come into play later, but Claudin messes up here and then the conductor notices. And I'm still not sure if he messes up because he has legitimate arthritis or if he is so taken with Christine, he sort of loses himself for half a second. It'll have consequences later on, but like, I'm still not sure. I think you could read that either way. Yeah, he will admit that he can't play the way he used to he's not a younger man anymore and all this kind of thing which is why he wrote what he wrote the way he wrote it to be played sort of easily i guess or not strain uh but so i believe him when it comes to, i think we're just 
seeing a guy at the end, you know what I mean? Like, even though he's only, what, 46 or something, he's like a million years old in this story. (laughs) (laughs) Not much older than me. Yeah, I think we're just seeing, you know, a guy past his prime is what they're trying to set up. Both readings are totally legitimate. You're you're probably right. But yeah, I, I love that it could go either way. And so with the opera ending... Raul is like immediately trying to sweep Christine away. So much so that he he pulls her off stage before the curtain call. She misses the curtain call. You can't do that. Yeah, no. Stage director's pissed. Yes. And he is the first of several men in this movie that will call into question her dedication to the opera because of shit like this. Dude, I, I literally wrote right away. I wrote this production, like the opera house, like whoever's running this show is a wreck. Things, yeah. <laughs> things are just not in control backstage at all. When I think about the fact that Claudan was dismissed because he, he can't play perfectly anymore, I think about all the moments on stage when these actors are on stage performing and they are making eyes at each other making eyes to you know somebody in the wings this is the least professional behavior i've ever seen in my life and yet claudan can't fudge one note on the violin there's gonna be like a short scene much later where the people who are sort of the managers i guess are like what why did we think this was a good idea to run an opera (laughs) we have no idea what we're doing Yeah, so Christine gets sort of a dressing down from uh, the stage manager and then is asked to come to the office of uh, of our conductor after the after the performance. And so she gets the second conversation of, you know, how seriously are you taking all of this? He finds out she's in sort of like not a relationship, but like is interested in this inspector, a man who couldn't possibly understand what it takes to be a a member of the Paris opera. A lot of this sort of soapy bullshit. I kind of like some of the I like what they're trying to set up, just like not the way they're doing it because it is very soapy. But I love this whole thing of like, Christine, you have to choose between like your life and your career career like this opera has to be your life like 24 7 if you want to make it kind of thing it's just like it comes across so high school in, yes. in that way where it almost feels like this is her guidance counselor not her boss trying to be like you have to think about the future christine you know they find out that raul's a cop and they don't really like that and it's like well is there some shady shit going on behind the scenes like what's on the up and up here i'm starting to wonder I think it's just early 1880s men just being men. I didn't read into it more than that. But you know, at the same time, you know, we've seen modern movies that depict theater culture. You know, like a a recent example that immediately comes to mind is like Black Swan, right? That means it's the ballet, not the opera, but you still get sort of like that ruthless culture, you know, do anything to get ahead within the art. Yeah, I think Birdman, right? Birdman's another. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I like how they're setting up how a cop and an opera singer are on the same level. When it comes down to it, Raul and, and Anatole are both contenders for Christine, but like it's saying their their vocations are sort of equal. It's just that they're kind of masters at what they do. I think that's what that's what I got from it. You know, it's yeah. like I like how they don't dress down anybody in this for being in the arts or anything like that. You know, and I don't think they're trying to say that either with this cop in there. It's just he seems like such an outsider to this family. I guess that he's a bit of a threat to everybody. But this exchange here, I'm trying to think of a reason for it because it's sort of repeating a sentiment that we just saw 
well previously with the stage manager, the unprofessionalism of not being there for the curtain call. Uh, I mean, I guess we get inference that if she's going to take her, her artistic life seriously, she can't be in a relationship with somebody uh, who's not a member of that community. That will be repeated over and over. But like, for the most part, the reason for this scene is so that she can bump into Claudan in the hallway as he is on his way in. I don't feel like both of these scenes are really necessary, really Claudan's is, but Christine could have just not had this exchange at all and run into him backstage somewhere. Yeah, I suppose that they could have told us that she was the understudy, that she's the ingenue, like all this kind of stuff and that, but that we kind of have to, that comes a little bit later. You're right. I didn't, it didn't occur to me. And that's sort of going to be repeated more, I feel as yeah. well, because, you know, they don't really have, I guess, a lot of confidence in Christine at this point. That's right. She hasn't proven herself yet. Yeah, she hasn't really had that moment to shine and had to take stage or anything like that. So I could feel that maybe they're a little weary of their investment and they're like, look, you missed a curtain call. Like, what's going on? Like, I, I guess it deserves detention. And so the next scene, she runs into Claudan as he is on his way into the office. This scene more or less uh, establishes his, I don't want to call it obsession yet, but his interest in Christine. You know, he is clearly taken with her, sees her as someone who is very talented and is concerned for her, uh, you know, because he noticed she didn't make the curtain call. You know, maybe she's ill. This is Claudan pre-accident, right? So he's a very kind, concerned man. I think this is him at his absolutely most harmless yeah this is a this is a nice introduction for him he's so like meek and harmless and he's gonna cause so much murder later you can't even imagine it's the same guy at some point and i think there are issues with that possibly we'll get into it but i don't necessarily buy that this man would go on to become this maniac backstage when we get to the scene i feel like i can understand him snapping it might be a bit extreme but again we're supposed to be in a horror movie so uh I'm, I'm trying to go with whatever i can get when it comes to all that so they want to turn this guy into like a serial killer sure uh we'll get there but this is just very funny how she's like oh i've kind of barely noticed you and he's like i've never not like thought about you ever and we're gonna find <laughs> out he's like secretly sponsoring her and paying for voice lessons and all this kind of thing right very very kind of interesting stuff gonna be coming from this relationship also we got to mention her dress in this scene mm -hmm. she's wearing that insane blue and red dress with the red leaves coming up the front and stuff just remarkable yes absolutely beautiful i mean i expect all of the uh costumes that they wear on stage to be lavish and you know and absolutely gorgeous but even like the stuff she's wearing casually is, is really well designed too so Claudan is having his meeting with Villanueva, I believe his name is. I mean, I'm, I'm going to try to pronounce some of these names. I don't do well with French, so forgive me if I butcher some of these. But um, he is the conductor we see out in the opening sequence. And he has Claudan play something on the violin. And he plays this sweet, sort of sad lullaby. And he plays it beautifully. And even Villanueva admits he played it beautifully. So like, what could be the problem? And of course, Claudan chose something that was very simple, which he admits to sort of fool his boss. And he doesn't have a good explanation for what happened out in the theater that evening. We assume, again, that it's probably arthritis. Something is up with his hands. He can't play as well as he used to. Uh, I suspect he may have just been a little bit stunned by Christine, who knows? But in any case, he is dismissed from the theater. Yeah, I believe him or else he would have played what he was supposed to, what he screwed up that night instead of this this lullaby of his. So, sure. And I like that because I'm already sympathetic for the guy because... Yep. 
of his stature and manners and just the way he carries himself. And it's just like, I don't want to see this guy get hurt or anything. And so like to take his job away from him and to take his, not just that, but like his career and his uh-huh. livelihood and like, he's got no money. And, and the guy's even like clearly have amassed like a wealthy retirement fund. You should be okay. So he's got like no problem just shit canning this dude. And it's like, yeah, I have no second thoughts. Like you'll just, you'll be fine. Little do we know. He does offer him a season ticket. I mean, he didn't realize what an insult that was, but what an insult. Just like a 20 years he's been with this company. 20 years and it's not even like well do you want to like do something backstage pull this rope so that the curtain comes down at the end of every show we'll figure something out right yeah they can't even manage to keep him employed in some capacity he just gets uh tossed out on the street and then we see his apartment which is very small and there are multiple illusions within this section of the film where he has been paid handsomely for 20 years and should have quite a bit to retire on but he doesn't he's living in this little shithole it looks like a set from like the early 30s like when these films were more expressionistic it looks like it could come from a frankenstein yeah it's got like the slanted ceilings and just like the brutal gray concrete everything going on i was thinking like caligari caligari is another one yeah he kind of looked like the circus wizard or whatever dr caligar he kind of has like that little vibe to him and stuff but yeah you're like where's all your money man the landlady comes in and is like you're gonna be buried with it and they're gonna dig you up for it and i was like oh they just did that to his son in the wolfman in the last movie they thought he was buried with all of his money so they tried to dig him up that actress i learned the one who plays his his landlady that was her career she would play the heavy in a lot of different movies like always kind of bossy women and she does it so well here and i feel so i feel so bad for him but if he can't pay rent he's gonna be out on the street you know we don't know why he doesn't have any money yet we will learn soon but yeah i love this set i think this this set if it were in black and white and and lit a little differently this would be like you know straight out of murders in the room org it makes me think oh why didn't they do more of this like i mean they get there a little bit in the sewer when we get there i think the sewer gets close to it but you know you just said something that rattled my brain like damn what if I watched this and turned all the color off on my TV and just tried to check it out in black and white. I wonder what that would be like. I wonder what would work. Yeah. Like for a movie that's not supposed to be black and white, uh, I often wonder. You know, I think certain sequences in this would work. I think Claudine's apartment certainly would work. I think a lot of the sewer stuff would work. Anything with shadows. But the issue is, and you know, to my earlier point, is that so much of this is brightly lit. Just be very flat. Yeah, it'd be very flat. But next scene, we are at Christine singing lesson her vocal lesson and this is where we discover that Claudine has been financing her vocal lessons and it is secretly right yes yeah which is okay like I just have a quick question for you Dan like Mm -hmm. if someone was like funding you know let's just say you wanted to go to art school or something and someone was funding your life drawing classes wouldn't you ask the teacher who's paying for this (laughs) yeah how did this start what is going on now Uh, and it's not like this just started I, i i feel like they've been doing this for a while Yeah, it's not clear how long she's been having these lessons. But yeah, she never really seems concerned about how this 
is all being paid for. And I also, I gotta be honest, I have a hard time believing that 20 years worth of payment is down the drain due to vocal lessons. I mean, yeah. how much are these lessons costing? Yeah, well, the best in Paris. We also get from this teacher, he's like, music is everything. You gotta really want it. Like, yep. you know, you can't have ass. It's like, yeah, we, we know. Also, I just wanna point out beautiful Vera West dress in this scene also, that gray with the green trim. And yeah, so Claudine goes into the teacher to explain to him that uh, he will not be able to make payments for a little while. Uh, he has plans, you know, to get some more money, but for the time being, he can't make any payments and is hoping that this teacher will continue to instruct Christine uh, as a favor, which, you know, you know how that goes. Yeah, and he's like, oh, this is where he's like, I'm gonna go sell my concerto, so don't worry about it. I'll be back. Yes, so that's the other bit of information that we get here is that Claudine has been working on a concerto that he hopes to you know, have published and get some more income. Um, when he goes to check on his concerto, shit goes horribly wrong. Oh man, the publishers that day is just not where he should have got. Like, talk about bad timing, man. Yeah, this was just too convenient timing, if you ask me. I love the concept that there were like these publisher shops that you could go to and just kind of like sell them your music. It, mm -hmm. they, I remember being, when I was in college, I minored in music and we talked a lot about publishing and this was right before the internet. This, I mean, we talked like a lot of like Napster and stuff like that in class. And it's so fun to see it here where it's just like, yeah, publishing place, like come in, like you got a book, you got, you got a song, like you got a concerto, like press your luck, maybe we'll do it. Yeah, for some reason this publisher, like he's got, Acid. I've watched this scene a couple times and trying to figure out why he has acid. I could not figure it out. They're making acetate plates, right? I think that's what she said. I don't know that it's ever really vocally addressed. They're also, they seem to be some sort of printing press too. So maybe they're right. making plates and things like that for printing and okay I, I don't know but yeah they're handling dangerous acid this guy and his secretary just in his you know office <laughs> watch out for that acid no face shield no eye wash station come on all the things we learned in high school chemistry class yeah so he's he's handling this acid uh, Claudine comes in to sort of get his concerto or at least check on the status of it and he can't find it the assistant that's there you know she can't find it and then what I think is interesting is that a couple times in this scene, we learn that Claudine has submitted multiple concertos over the past few years, and he is sort of universally reviled, right? Like, he's not good at this. Yeah, this is a very sort of complex scene for the movie, I feel, where he has to get the wrong idea about what's happening in the office that day. Right. They take his concerto, and he's asked to wait kind of like a very long time, and you see, like, the guy in the back going, like, he's finally written something good, you know? And, yeah. like, all these years, I wish I could have recommended we buy his work but he's finally done something worth it and he's getting the brush off by someone else that works there and he thinks they stole it he starts hearing someone play it and he's like that's mine that's mine and the guy's like i don't know what you're talking about i don't know what you're talking about and like i mean like i feel like that's so like i could so understand that that whole sort of misunderstanding going on plays so well to me in this movie and what's so tragic is that so it's it's fritz Lieber, the actor playing Franz Liszt, who's a real person. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I was like, do I think dragged him into this movie? He's like totally down to have this published and give Claudin his due. He's like, oh, I wish I wrote this. Yeah. Bring him in immediately. 
And why is he in the office that day? It's so weird. <laughs> yeah, it's just a perfect storm, right? And so Claudan hears his music being played in the other room, has no idea what conversation is happening in there, and just immediately assumes that his concerto was stolen and flies into a rage that results in him choking this publisher to death and his assistant with this tray of acid just throws it into his face. I felt like I was watching the Joker's origin. What is amazing to me is how the lady who throws the acid just kind of stands there with this look on her face like you deserved it. Like doesn't right. do anything, not even panic. Her boss was just throttled to death by this you know, she, he's a stranger to her. Right. Claude reigns in his like raving madness and screaming and, and everything. Like, I don't know. It just struck like this weird nerve. Like, ugh, like I bought that in that moment. He's like something else. You know, I feel like he completely snapped. Yeah, I mean, it does work in that scene. I guess what I have trouble with is believing that the man that we meet at the beginning of the movie becomes this guy who just kills whoever for the sake of this one woman. But, you know, in this one scene, yes, him him snapping and, and you know, just assuming that this guy was trying to steal his concerto. Yes, I buy that. Um, I, I just have a hard time buying the arc as a whole. I think it's a little bit of an, of an extreme arc. But I guess he kills this one guy in for a penny and for a pound. Maybe that's it. But yeah, he has this like real Batman villain origin. You know, he, he flees from the, the publisher, is like stumbling through the streets of Paris. Yeah, this stuff's really cool. Like this is what I wish there was almost more of. The guy runs out of the publishing place and he like immediately like forms a mob too. Do you remember right. that? Where he's just like, the guy went nuts and murdered my boss. And then there's like a huge mob. And then there's a search party immediately. <laughs> And I was like, this is nice and familiar. I'm glad that they worked some of this manhunt stuff into the movie. Yeah, and I love the imagery of him crawling into the, the manhole with the lantern. The shot compositions here are, are absolutely beautiful, especially that like low angle shot of him under the manhole cover as police are searching under the wagon. Yeah, that's what was so impressive to me about like the night shooting stuff, like the darkness and the, and the night stuff. It's so easy to read. Like I was thinking it in compared to modern movies, watching a movie take place at night sometimes is like for me, Maybe it's my eyes, but it's like unreadable. Like, I just don't know. It's just all black sometimes. Mm -hmm. I just can't discern what's on the screen. But here it's great because, you know, they're really, they're shooting in this color process. And, you know, I just really liked it a lot. And I wish more of it took place at night or in the dark because yeah. when it does, I think is when it's strongest it's it's got that horror vibe like it proves like you could do that they just were not interested in doing more of it i guess yeah i agree i was just thinking it as you said it out loud that the best parts of this movie happen in the darkness and there's just there's just not enough of it unfortunately but as claudan makes his way into the sewers and starts just rinsing his face off with the raw sewage uh, yeah he just falls right into that crap literally oh that is disgusting man <laughs> it's very like tim burton-esque now that I, you yep. know i was getting even Batman Returns, there's like yeah. that kind of sewer looking kind of vibe going on. 100%. Yeah. So we cut to uh, a scene with the opera owners. There are three men. One of these men you should recognize. So there's two of them that wear those like armless glasses. I forget what those are called, you know? The one with the mustache 
we've seen him previously. That's J. Edward Bromberg, who was the goofy, bumbling Nazi in Invisible Agent. Yeah, we love this performance. Yes. I thought he got into a bit of legal trouble at some point. <laughs> Wasn't going to be coming back, but I guess that was after all this. Yeah, it wouldn't happen until later. He was caught up in the... Um, the McCarthy hearings? Yes. That wouldn't happen quite yet. I did not recognize him. No. No. I, I can't say that I did. <laughs> it, he looks completely unrecognizable here because he's got the, the gray hair, the mustache, the glasses, and of course the ensemble he's wearing is entirely different. But that's him. And if you rewatch his scenes, it's like, oh yeah, of course it's that guy. Uh, but I was happy to see him come back. These three actors, I believe, were all predominantly uh, comedy actors, and you can sort of get a sense of that from their interactions just about every scene they're in is very loose uh, a little bit funny i like these guys I like i like this scene i was not expecting this scene at all but i mean it makes perfect sense you got to have like the owners and the, the heads of the opera house like talking about what's going on and like this is a huge scandal man like they just found out that the violinist they fired murdered somebody and is uh now out there like on the loose someone's been stealing a bunch of crap from the opera house, you know, like food and stuff and all these kinds of things, costumes. One of them thinks it's the g g g, -g ghost uh, you know, <laughs> like he's already sort of floating that theory. He's like, oh, this opera house has always been haunted. And they're like, pshaw, like, you know, kill that noise. Like, there ain't no such thing as ghosts. And then we see our first shot of him. We see the shadow shot and it's so weird. And then they cut back and the guy's like, the master key's been stolen. Yes. This is crazy. Like, things are happening very fast. Yes. So you mentioned, I think it's the stage manager who starts talking about the opera ghost, right? And I think this is one of those things that sort of relies on a little bit of shorthand. I don't think it's inconceivable that a theater could have a, a legend of, of like a ghost. However, it's never been mentioned in the movie up to this point. It feels a little bit awkward. Unlike the silent film where this phantom has existed in that theater for as long as people have like can remember, right? There's always been like weird stuff that happens here. And so it doesn't really serve this movie well to bring that back in because it just, it feels wonky. It feels like they felt obligated to incorporate a theater ghost when there's never been a theater ghost mentioned before. Yeah, yeah. And there's one simple solution is just mention it in the first act. Right, it's not inconceivable. It's not inconceivable for somebody who works in a theater like full time to have heard stories in their time, you know, but unsubstantiated rumors, right? But now, like the coincidence of, of, of now having somebody literally back there, like, okay, that would make more sense. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, and I mean, it's just so easy to work it into the movie too. Just you could have the new, fresh Christine say like, oh, I heard this opera house was haunted and like there's bad luck or something you could drop that line early on or you could even have claude rains drop a line about it after he's fired or something like that about like you know this place is cursed or something you know it's, right. it's very simple to do otherwise you're right just like don't even have this guy be like oh things always go missing around here <laughs> it's like no they don't but i do love every time he he goes to like reference the ghost he does the sort of pantomime of the long nose and the, the red beard yeah what's that's the devil thing right he does that later to a guy who looks yes. like that <laughs> yep. yeah and they, and they just hang on that shot for way too long <laughs> But yeah, so all sorts of stuff is missing. They do get into Claudin having been fired, which they did not seem reasonable to them, right? So all of this news is sort of happening all at the same time. Then we cut to a sequence with Christine and Anatole where she is humming the lullaby 
that Claudan played earlier in the film. So now we learn that that lullaby he learned from her, which I think is cool. Aside from that, this scene is just singing. It's Anatole trying to take Christine out on a date and get her to commit. Yeah, she's trying to rehearse. Raul comes in and that, that's kind of funny. I like the doorbell rings. And Raul comes by and he's like, yes, I want to ask you out, but but I also have to tell you about Claudine. And like he went insane and uh, they found a bust of her. Yeah, what happened was Claudin, after he strangled that man at the, at the publishing office, Raul was put in charge of that investigation. And when they searched his apartment, they found the bust of Christine. And so now he's bringing it over to her apartment to figure out what the connection is between Christine and Claudin. And Anatole's there rehearsing and he's like, I'd made that. I was going to give it to Christine. And Raul's like, how did you make this? He's like, well, most from memory and he's like damn <laughs> that was awesome and so they like deduce that claude dan was in love with christine and all this kind of thing um but it's so funny how raul's like well you should have the bust christine so i give you the bust and anatole's like wait a minute i made that and he's like well we'll both give it to her and that's when i was like this feels like a disney movie right now <laughs> yes this is like the first of a couple scenes that it's just the the most ridiculous dick measuring, but like the most PG version I've ever seen. Yeah. Dan, like we've talked about love triangles and like, I think by now you and I could probably write a pretty good one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is out of control. Like this is, I don't know what is happening. Like there's no subtlety and that's what is, I guess, so funny about it, but also what bothers me, you know, like the lack of sophistication in the writing, but the amount of sophistication in the production and everywhere else is like so lopsided at times that it does feel like days of our lives you know scenes like this are the reason i have no issue whatsoever using the word like soap opera to describe a lot of this movie it's very broad and there's almost no nuance to it it beats you over the head and because there's so much of it it becomes exhausting quite frankly but i mean i do try to find some enjoyment out of like the chemistry between them because i do think that they all have good chemistry together uh, especially watching anatole and raul like sort of bounce off of each other it is it can be funny yeah it's good stuff it's just not what I want right like from a Phantom of the Opera movie yeah if there wasn't so much of it I probably wouldn't mind but you could almost say that this movie is more about this love triangle than it is about the Phantom yeah it is because we don't even see the Phantom for an hour full-on real phantom so the following night there's a new opera it feels like the following night but who knows how much time has passed presumably they're not just jumping right into the next opera without any rehearsal time so now we get sort of introduced to bianca roli who is played by jane farrar she is like the head singer right like she's like the star of this opera yeah she's the diva and they're heading out to perform this new show this is where christine is getting ready in her her dressing room and she hears a voice come through the wall the voice says you're going to be a great and famous singer i'll help you and then we see the shadow of the phantom cast against a wall and he ex exits out of frame and now we're getting ready to start the opera properly and christine runs into anatole backstage and he says the exact same thing to her which is curious I think that would have worked better if we hadn't seen the origin of the Phantom. That would have been a fun mystery if the Phantom was already kind of established and the movie wasn't so much about him. And we have Anatole say the exact thing she heard in her dressing room. Like, I don't know, that could have been a really fun way to tell this story. Unfortunately, it really just doesn't have any impact. We, the audience, know it's not 
Anatole. Questionable choice. I agree. But then we get a taste of our diva. She has a whole song. Yeah, this is like one of the one times where they do something that changes like the flow of the movie during one of the opera songs, like the Phantom Strikes. Yeah, she has this goblet she's supposed to drink from. During the, the show, he manages to poison the drink. So then it goes out on stage. She takes her sip. And then when she goes off stage in the wings, she starts to feel sick. Unable to finish the show, Christine, her understudy, is now sort of thrust into her role to have her huge moment to shine, right? This is that scene where she has that ear piercing note that she holds for like what feels like 10 seconds. Oh my gosh, it was incredible. I just couldn't believe it. Like, it was just remarkable. You know, I just had not heard music like that in a long time. So I was pretty stunned. And the whole sequence is like really well structured and put together, you know, like uh, with the way that the production's going on and she takes the drink and walks backstage and we follow her backstage and she has like that stomach ache and starts to faint the shock of christine having the moment and when she goes on stage anatole being like christine you know uh-huh. like uh-huh. in his face his expression being like oh oh awesome like you're getting your chance and then we get that shot still not like close up that i was expecting but we get a shot of the phantom listening from below which was cool Yeah, I actually really liked that sequence of him just kind of standing there looking up and listening to Christine finally get to to sing in the the spotlight the way he he believes she deserved. Yeah, and the crowd goes crazy and they cut back to him and he's all by himself. Yeah, I think just from a visual storytelling point of view, that's some of the most effective work in this entire movie. So there's a really fun detail at the end of that sequence that just reminded me of how sort of undisciplined this opera house is. Between the time the curtain goes down and before it comes back up for she takes a bow, one of the other opera people goes up to her and was like, that was amazing. You were incredible or something. And then like just in time for the curtain to rise, she like gets back into position. I was like, yeah, you gotta hold that shit until you're off stage you know that's almost like walking off and not coming back for the curtain call it's like don't move like what are you doing like i really love when she comes out for her curtain call and the red technicolor curtain opens up and there's that gray curtain behind it i'm sure it was just a gray curtain but it looked like a black and white movie behind the color you know what i mean like oh yeah yeah I don't know how to describe it other than that. It just like it looks like the color is separating for a second and we're seeing a black and white movie through it. But it's just a great curtain. I just think it's a really interesting visual choice. Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing I could say about this movie that I didn't expect to is that the more it goes on, the more like visually interesting I find it, you know, like Mm -hmm. I sort of was earlier in the show saying like, well, because it's in color, we don't get like a lot of that noir-esque shadow and play with contrast and stuff. But it has its own stuff that it's doing that it's bringing to be its own visual feast with the language that it's talking and showing and and doing in color so the next scene is after the the opera is over christine has had her time to shine the management christine anatole bianca roli are all backstage trying to figure out what happened and how to move forward. Raul is there, you know, he's investigating what happened. According to the stage manager who spoke to the prop manager, there was no opportunity for anybody to poison the goblet, but Bianca Rolli cannot be dissuaded. She is convinced that either Christine did it or Anatole did it, but it was all done with the intent to 
eliminate her and put Christine in the spotlight. Yeah, and there's no evidence. It's all hearsay. And the best part is that the manager's like, we can't afford another scandal. We just had this violinist. We fired murder somebody. Yeah. And now things are missing and everything. And so they want to, like, strike a deal. Maybe we could we, we could work with us. You don't have to call, like, more cops. Let's work this out. And I just think it's so funny how they're so concerned about scandal and all this kind of thing. And they want to just like wipe everything under the carpet. Really, what their issue is, is they, they can't pretend what happened didn't happen. Christine came out. She sang. The critics were there. They can't just ignore that, right? And she's like, you can, kind of. <laughs> yeah, what's going to happen is Christine's going to go back to the chorus until my contract is over, and we're just going to pretend nothing happened. But for the opera, like, they just cannot proceed that way. And there's no proof Christine or Anatole had anything to do with what happened to her that evening. And if she pursues that, then it could possibly blow back on her and the opera. So it's a very complicated uh, situation for everybody. And so what ends up happening is Christine goes back to the chorus and they try to pretend what happened didn't happen. But the Phantom's probably listening to every word they said in that room before in the last scene because he visits. Yeah, the very next scene, she's in her dressing room and the Phantom comes in and chokes her to death. So not just her, but like her assistant, too. I don't think he kills the assistant, too. I think he just kills her. No, I think he murders her and the maid. Someone comes in and says they're both dead, I think. But regardless, he, he starts racking up a big body count. Yeah, he's just going to kill anybody who's going to stand in the way of Christine and her career. They're the career that he intended. For her. And we get a bit of a chase. We do. So we get some information that I thought was interesting. Screams are heard from the dressing room. All, all the other girls from the chorus come pouring out of their own dressing room. And it, and it occurred to me that these women must live here full time. Like these dressing rooms are made as like state rooms. Oh, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, I could see that. It hadn't occurred to me that like they would live at the opera house, which does now that I'm thinking about it out loud, you know, I'm thinking back to a movie like Suspiria where you have that ballet school and they all live there, right? And they perform in that space. They live there. So maybe that's what the Paris Opera House was at the time. I literally had not even thought about it until now. So I haven't had any time to like look it up and see if that was the case. But I think it's interesting that if you are contracting by the Paris Opera House at this time, like that's where you live for the duration of your contract. Yeah, it never occurred to me either, but I like the sound of that. Yeah, I just think it's interesting. Yeah, it's cool. The Phantom comes running out of the room, sort of like the Hamburglar, just sort of like runs down the hallway. <laughs> That is like the most apt comparison I can imagine right now. It's like he does. He, he's just like, rubble, rubble, get out of my way. With like the cape and the hat. Like I watched it the other night and I thought, dude, looks like the Hamburglar just fleeing the scene of a, of a burger crime. Even though I prefer half a face of mask, I think this mask is pretty okay. It's kind of it's kind of all right. I guess ultimately it, it looks like eyes wide shut. Like he looks like he's like on his way to that party in the mansion and eyes wide shut. Yeah, the mask is okay. We haven't really talked about how we felt about this particular mask. I don't love it. It's a little bit bland for my taste. I want to say I prefer the hammer version a little more, the one that has just one eye. You know, yeah. one, one of the eyes is sort of closed. I don't really care for the original phantom mask all that much that sort of half mask he has i hate to say it but i think that the the andrew lloyd weber sort of like side mask is my preferred phantom mask yeah that's the one i think of too we get a great chase sequence here as anatole pursues claudan up into the catwalk of the theater we get some stunt work here i think in terms of stunt work this might be it for the movie i know you're a resident stunt 
expert here. Well, like even Raul gets in on the chase and they just keep going up and up into the rafters and across all the catwalks. And uh, it's just very tense and fun. It's a nice setting. It's a nice sort of action set piece and everything. And then, yeah, like the Phantom like throws something at Anatole and pushes him over the edge and he has to cling on to the curtains and he's like shimmying his way down and he's definitely gonna like fall to his death but like at the last second he grabs a rope and he swings down safely and tumbles and stuff and he's like got this look of fear on his face like I've never seen like he just looks like death warmed over like it's crazy like I love this sequence this chase sequence is so much fun you know Anatole is a big guy right but he is not a fight I love that as intimidating as he could be, you know, he's a baritone in the opera. He's not going to kick anybody's ass. And when he's put in that situation where he has to sort of become a little bit of a swashbuckler, he just barely makes it through that scenario. Yeah, yeah. He's he's not the cop. Right. He's not the guy who should have been first in that chase. <laughs> right, right. The cop's in the back uh, of those three. Like, he never catches up to them, but he needs to be the one, yeah, who catches the Phantom. Raul does not see the Phantom at all. He was chasing Anatole. So now suddenly Anatole is finding himself under more suspicion, which again, does not work because we know who the Phantom is. And man, this stuff would play so much harder if it wasn't so silly the whole, you know what I mean? Like, not that this moment is silly, but I'm just saying if there hadn't been so much silliness already, like we're getting to this good stuff, but it just doesn't have the impact it would have if they were taking it seriously. Yeah, the comedy, as much as it does work as comedy, does undercut a lot of what could be really effective suspense or horror. I read somewhere that uh, Arthur Lubin, he was very proud of this movie uh, up until the day he died. However, he really wanted to make a horror movie and Universal's priorities for this project were just different. And so he didn't really get to make the horror movie that he had hoped to make, you know, despite being proud of it. I think there must have been some part of him that regretted not being able to really make a horror movie. You know, he was one of those like in-house guys, like I said. So he was used to just taking his orders from the guys up top. He, he made the movie they wanted to make and he did it really well. So I'll say that for him. Yeah. So now Raul, he has like a minor press conference, uh, explains that, you know, the opera is closed until further notice. And, and his theory is that uh, if the opera remains closed indefinitely, they will never figure out who their uh, phantom is. And so he goes back to the front office at the uh, opera house and they devise this plan to reopen the opera and uh, essentially get a new singer. One of the opera owners found a note from the phantom that basically said that Christine will take over or else, right? Or else, you know, something else will happen. And Raul's plan is to reopen the, the opera and bring a completely different woman in for that role, basically to use her as bait to draw the phantom out. Yeah. Make it a trap. Yeah. I mean, pretty basic plan. Yeah. This whole thing about like the phantom stuff getting serious and then like starting to take him seriously and setting this trap and stuff like this is good stuff. Like I like how we're moving along here. Yeah, this this is good stuff. It's just it sucks that it took an, an hour to get there. Completely agree. And like that's probably the thing I was trying to like put my finger on is like it's not bad. It just doesn't have the impact that I want it. You know, it just yeah. doesn't have that because it's not set up in that way. So the next scene is where Anatole and Raul convene at Christine's house and they keep talking over each other. Oh man, yeah. So this is like one of the most perfectly comically timed scenes we've 
seen yet in all of the stuff we've watched. Uh, it just sucks that it's in this movie. What is this sequence doing, especially at this point in the movie where things are so serious at the opera house? Like, both of the suitors come over. As if we didn't think they were similar enough, they're literally speaking at the same time, moving at the same time, like, get stuck in the door again, I think. That door jam joke, I mean, we end on that joke. Like, the movie closes on that joke. I just don't get it why they're doubling down so hard at at this point in the movie when people have been murdered at the opera house like a lady was murdered like it's not like a policeman got injured like people are murdered this reminds me of the um was it the mummy we were watching dan where like people are murdered left and right and they're like let's go on a picnic let's get married (laughs) yes there's a bit of that happening the mummy's tomb where um all of the characters from the mummy's hand were being killed and like one dude and his girlfriend are like going out and they get engaged and yeah yeah so they tell her about the plan to reopen is basically what the scene is right yes so they both come in with their own plans for how to catch this phantom and we know Raul's plan is to reopen the theater and have Christine not sing in order to draw the phantom out and Anatole says that he has a plan of his own that does require her to sing so these guys are already at odds but Anatole refers refuses to reveal what his plan is. And so now we've got two guys with conflicting plans, both acting independently. The following scene reveals Anatole's plan. His involves having Franz Liszt show up and play the concerto that Claudin had composed. Yeah, to lure him out. Yes, if he heard his own music played in that opera, that it would lure him out. And that's a pretty decent plan. Less people are in harm's way with his plan. They should have tried this one first instead of second. Yeah, you know, there's just too much dick measuring, Mike. I get it. They have to both have to prove that they are the man for Christine. No, I get it. I get it. I'm just wondering, List isn't busy doing stuff. He's not on tour. He's like, yeah, sure, I'll swing by the opera house as a favor. It's just wild. I expect more historical characters to show up now. Where's Edgar Allan Poe? I don't know. (laughs) So both plans go ahead. First up is going to be Raoul. The theater reopens. Madame Lorenzi, who is this Italian singer of some renown, is going to be taking Christine's place in the opera. And somehow the Phantom has learned about this. And he leaves a note to the managers saying, if Madame Lorenzi sings, you will be responsible for what happens. This is your last warning. And so, you know, they are rightfully a little bit apprehensive to go ahead with this plan, but they decide to anyway. Yeah, this is a really awesome sequence, actually. Now that I'm thinking about it, like would totally be worth rewatching this part of the movie again and again when the Phantom basically like blends into the performance mm-hmm. to do his dastardly stuff. I love this part. It's so tense, you know, like I love the way it's edited and the way that they're cutting back and forth between everything. It's like really building a lot of suspense. This is maybe where the mask uh, works best for me because he stole it from the prop room. And so it makes sense that he could just blend in with everybody here the way he does. Yeah, yeah. They're doing their production of Eyes Wide Shut. So (laughs) they've all got the masks on. The theater is filled with cops. You know, they're just everywhere. And that forces Claudin to sneak in among them and kind of get a sense of what is going to be happening. And of course, that's when he learns about Madame Lorenzi singing in the opera that evening. And so as the opera is going on, curtain goes up, we get a a shot of uh, like a great crane shot 
of the curtain opening. Uh, chandelier is in the foreground. Oh, I've been waiting the whole movie. We see it as prominently in like the first scene, you know? So it's like, we just keep getting reminded, oh, right, there's chandelier. So as the opera is going on, Claudin sees that Madame Lorenzi is, is singing and immediately makes his way up into like the rafters of the opera house. Yeah, there was this cool moment when he's lurking around on stage and he's standing right next to Raoul. Yes, and that's that's the sequence like right after that is when he like he just Raul just pulls a mask off a guy. Yeah, he finds the dead dude and he just starts pulling masks. Well, he pulls the, the mask off the one guy standing next to the um, stage manager. He does like the, the pantomime of like the, the long nose and the beard and the looks exactly like that actor. Yeah, yeah. Nobody catches him on the way up. He manages to make his way past some of the cops that are up there in the rafters, but he does make his way up to the chandelier armed only with a hacksaw. He just starts going to town on the chain link that is holding this chandelier. I couldn't believe that he just pulled out that rinky dink hacksaw. Well, would have been awesome as if he had a little vial of that acid or something yeah splash that on there something to eat through the iron yeah but no he he, he man- somehow manages to cut through it with a hacksaw and for all of the ways this movie is really impressive this chandelier dropping onto the audience is not great no it's unfortunate it's like they missed the shot. It is. The way that they did it is they did it in these like close-ups and like there's a composite, right? So it like it's cut together to look like it's falling, but I don't think it's actually moving. There's certainly nothing actually moving in the space, right? It's all composite. Yeah, there's no one wide shot, one take of it falling. It's all done in like three or four quick cuts and it's kind of hard to tell what's happening (laughs) but the idea comes across that something fell very fast on the crowd (laughs) i was like what And you don't even really see it land you just sort of see a piece of it you know what did sell it for me though is there's a great moment when the person is singing and it comes down and i believe like her note goes from singing to a scream yeah I, i i do really love the way this scene is edited up until the chandelier falling And then everything after that's nice, too. Like, there's a nice sense of panic. You know, everyone's running out. Everyone's running all over the place. The Phantom comes down and grabs Christine. She doesn't know it's the Phantom because everyone looks like him at this point with the masks and stuff like that. It's really cool how he caused this pandemonium and is, like, weaving through it. You know, a little controlled chaos for him. I do think it's safe to say that the 1925 silent film did the chandelier moment far better. And with a much simpler technique, right? It sells the effect far better than it does here. It's possible that they were also concerned about destroying the chandelier chandelier too so they didn't want to take any unnecessary risks either way kind of a disappointing moment you fabricate a chandelier like you don't drop the real one right like, that's what you learned from last time but and and it's unfortunate too just because like i really feel like when they're up in the raptors and looking up from the stage like there's an incredible sense of depth in this movie at mm-hmm. times you know so it would have been a great opportunity to show maybe from the audience's point of view seeing that thing come down like that would have been a cool way to do it there are just so many different angles and and perspectives to pull that off and they kind of like fumble them all it's unfortunate considering that's one of the most important story beats 
in this. Either way, Claudan manages to blend back in with the cast through all of the pandemonium that's happening in the front of the house, in the back of the house, and whisks Christine off into his dungeon home down in the cellars or in the sewers. And I gotta say, this is another instance where I feel like the 20s silent film does it better. I felt like the original Phantom's underground lair was bigger deeper, more cavernous. This very much feels like a set in a way that the other one didn't so much. For what we have is nice. I would just like a lot more of it. Um, we never get on a little boat. There's no horse. There's no boat. There's no horse. That's for sure. Uh, we get that weird lake going on. Yeah, we just, we don't spend any time down here either. Like, I would have loved to have been down here earlier in the movie yeah. with him by himself, just like moping about, trying to figure out what to do, maybe writing a note or something like that, or setting up some kind of trap or, or anything like that. But it's too bad. It's another moment where the original Trumps, I mean, it would be great. We don't get him breathing underwater through a bamboo shoot, like none of that. And so the Phantom, Claudan, reveals himself in a way to Christine here that he's been the one behind all of her vocal coaching and kind of lays out this plan that from now on they're going to live down in this sewer. Yeah, that does not go over well with her whatsoever. And that's not what I was expecting him to say. I thought maybe he'd be like, we'll go away together. Like, we can get out of here now. It's the two of us. But instead he's like, no, we're going to live in the sewer. And what? On Sundays, she'll go up and do a matinee? <laughs> you see what says, you'll love it here. and You'll get used to it. You'll get used to the darkness. Yeah, and the smell. Yeah, she's not really into this idea at all. Who can blame her for that? And I do wish his lair was more impressive. You're right. Like, the original Phantom had a lot more going on down there. And it's just like, he's got this one little room. It's small. It's like smaller than his apartment was. You know, he was basically, he was basically already living in this. They did not trade up square footage or any of that kind of stuff. It's like, dude, there's got to be a bigger room down there. So as they are getting cozy, it is now Anatole's turn and he starts getting everything set up with Franz Litz to play the concerto. And as he starts to do that, Anatole and Raul and like a small gang of dudes, like cops, I guess, and actors head down into the sewers to find Christine. Yeah, it's a mob. We're all mobbed up again. It's the end of a horror movie. Finally, we can tell because the mob is after someone. Claudin starts playing for Christine and that's when, when Litz begins playing the concerto. And and as that starts, Claudan notices that's the music that's playing. He begins playing along and has Christine sing. As terrified as she is, she manages to find the wherewithal to sing. And as she's singing, we uh, we have that famous reveal moment, which I don't know how you felt about this. It felt a little bit clunky to me, maybe because I knew that it's the beat that was coming. It just, it doesn't play as smoothly as it could have. Yeah, it's really telegraphed in this. It's almost like we forgot to do it. We got to get this part done before the movie ends, which it's about right. to. We don't get to see him without his mask very long at all it's just like this one look this shock and that's pretty much it but again like we were saying earlier more about it like it grew on me the look grows on me because i do feel like this is sort of um maybe some kind of reference for what would eventually go on to be like some kind of two-faced thing you know because it i mean it just seems like i don't know when that character was first created in comics but i'd be damned if someone didn't base part of it on this look you know just the idea of only half of his face destroyed or something sure. but so for that alone i like it what i also like a lot is when he starts singing down in the sewers the guys hear it and it's what leads them to him they follow the voice so i thought that was 
kind of a cool thing. Yes. I do enjoy the shot of the reveal of his face. It's an interesting zoom that they do. It's very quick, but it's like in and out of focus as they try to like zoom it real quickly in on his face, get the camera focused. It was probably not intended to look so imperfect, but I kind of like the imperfection of it. That's just me. But we do get like a steady shot after Christine's reaction. And then I, I mentioned before there was like a hidden camera on set. I imagine the wide shots are what that camera picked up. So you get a little bit extra of Claudine's face as uh, Raul and Anatole barge into the room. We get that nice wide shot of all four characters. They see his face, he grabs a saber, Raul has his gun, and in the chaos, Raul's gun goes off and sets off a caving in of the room, like suddenly the walls and the ceiling start collapsing in on itself. Yeah, yeah. There was some mention of that a little earlier, that the whole place could come down at any minute. And I liked how Anatole kind of like blocks the gun. He doesn't want him to kill Claude Rains or anybody. Like he doesn't want anyone to get shot. I thought that was an interesting beat. I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting that to happen. But he, but he ends up shooting the ceiling and then it jostles everything loose and the cave-in starts occurring. Yeah, I don't totally understand his motivation. But yeah, you're right. And it's all uh, deflects the shot. The shot causes the cave-in. Anatole, Raul, and Christine make their way out and uh, leaving leaving Claudan to be buried under all of the rubble. I really like this escape sequence. I think for the most part, it, it looks really good. It's exciting. A lot of it's in like long takes, the camera's moving. But I did notice that uh, there's this one shot where like a bunch of stone falls from the ceiling and starts floating in the, in the lake. Yeah, not very heavy, eh? I was like, are those rocks just floating in the water? Just a little funny detail. Yeah. Yeah, they flee. They're out of there. That whole thing comes crumbling down. But the opera house is still standing, right? Like, wouldn't there be big holes in the floor? That opera house needs a lot of work done now that that chandelier fell. And who knows if it's ever going to open because of all the scandal. Can it survive all this scandal? And if they're far enough down below ground, I, I doubt that would even make any sort of... Uh, impact on the foundation but just before they escape christine has this one moment where you know she admits that she kind of felt sorry for him that's always so strange to me and it's 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 hardly unique you know just about every version of phantom of the opera kind of romanticizes this idea and i just don't get it i don't and, it, and it's not just like that but that comes up a lot in history of not just horror movies but like movies where maybe it's the patriarchy in charge and stuff that demands it in the boardrooms and shit and stuff but like whenever a fucking guy's playing a monster of a character like at some point at the end there i was like oh like i'm sure if he had a good heart if only there was more time and all that bullshit and it's like <laughs> no guy was some fucking monster just like, <laughs> like he flipped out he killed eight people he tried to kidnap you like what's wrong with you pick one of these guys you got two perfectly good dashing men that uh, would do anything for you here, aside from kidnap you and drag you into a sewer. Like, they won't do that. Sorry, Dan, but... No, I, no. I, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I agree. I, I just, I, I couldn't put it in, in better words. I think you did, a, you did a fine job, Mike. And then the final shot we see uh, of Claudan is his violin and the mask just resting among the rubble. Beautiful shot. Yes. Gorgeous. Just conditioned to expect a hand come up from underneath all that as if it's still alive. <laughs> I'm a little surprised we didn't get it, but very reminiscent of Andrew Lloyd Webber. You know, I, I think that if anything in this movie reminds me of, of his take on this story, it's, it's that one image. 
the epilogue we have here, Christine in her dressing room just got off stage, presumably from starring in a production of Faust. And Anatole comes rushing right in to take her out to dinner. But she unfortunately has plans with Raul tonight. And we get one last scene there with the three of them kind of playing off each other. Doesn't it turn out at the end of this movie that she rejects both of them for her adoring public and she goes out alone to be greeted by all of her fans and then Anatole and Raul look at each other and they're like, you want to go grab something to eat? And they're like, sure, why not? And they just take off together. Of all the happy endings that have been tacked on for a movie that was sort of building towards one, I think they pulled this one off. You know, like this is appropriate, you know, as much as we like it or not, this is an appropriate ending for this movie by far. I will say for all of the issues that we have with the, the gender politics of the time, this subverts all of those expectations in a way that does feel very satisfying, given the movie that we've gotten up to this point. I, I'm going to reiterate, I know we've said it a couple times, that like a lot of this stuff really drags down what could be a good Phantom movie. However, this is the movie we have, and this is the story they're telling, and I do think that this is perhaps the most satisfying way to end it. I, I agree 100% with you, and I do love to think about Raul and Anatole like going on a date together. That's yeah, <laughs> I, I think they should be together. I think this movie, whether I knew it at the time or it knows it or not or whatever's going on, I don't know for sure. But you have Christine who has all these men trying to control her life from Claude Rains giving her these secret lessons to these men trying to like position her in a better place in the opera and it's like now that she could do whatever she wants she's gonna go out on her own like she doesn't need these guys and stuff maybe it's a reflective just of the times we live in but i found that very refreshing for the end of a movie to be like no i reject all that and i'm just gonna go do my thing if, if there's one thing we've wanted for like every woman that we've seen up to this point, it's that sort of resolution, right? Like we want them to be independent, have agency, you know, and, and just not need no man really, you know? So so here we get it here. And I think that it works perfectly fine. I, I really enjoy it. So is this the Phantom movie that I wanted? No, but is this an ending that I can root for wholeheartedly? Absolutely, yes. That is the weirdest thing about this movie, you know, is like just take the Phantom stuff out and you have like a perfect, fine fun 40s romp about the opera and people in love with each other who can't make up their mind right and then like what a great ending where like at the end no one ends up with anybody like yeah. that would have been fun but like why did you have to throw the fan of the opera into this I do think I would enjoy this movie a lot more if it, if it wasn't a Phantom of the Opera movie. Yeah, I think that, I think then you're talking about like, maybe not Oscar material, but you're talking really fun romantic comedy. And then take take the good Phantom stuff from this and make a movie with that and you got a good Phantom movie. Nowadays, it feels like something that would have been a spec script and they're like, well, retrofitted to make the Phantom work in some yes. of this thing. Yeah. It has an opera theme. It's got same dynamics as that. Like, yeah, make it a Phantom movie. Yeah, it's unfortunate because like there's the makings of two really good movies or at least really fun movies in here. And uh, what we get is sort of like half of a good movie. And it's too bad because we talked about they don't usually struggle with having an even feeling film. Usually the comedy and the horror is balanced or 
there's no comedy or what have you. And, you know, on some occasions there's too much comedy, but this just feels like way too much on one side. You know, this is the most unbalanced one we've had yet. Yeah, because The Invisible Woman was a, was an outright comedy. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, th- this one wants to do too much at the same time and it doesn't really do any of it effectively. Yeah, and it just doesn't do Phantom justice, so. Yeah, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Is, is there anything else you want to add before we go? You know, I think this movie has a lot going for it. It's just like we said, it's not a horror movie. And it's just too bad that, that it's called Phantom of the Opera. I wish it was just called like Backstage. And it was, uh, you know, just, just a straight out comedy thing doing its own thing. But I also give Universal a lot of credit for branching out and trying because they were so successful with sort of reformulating the monster stuff in black and white by teaming them up with multiple monsters in a movie that to take such a hard turn with this and go like, no, color, sophistication, opera, you know, a whole different sort of audience out there. Like I give them a lot of credit for doing that, but I also feel like they're not going to do that again with these creatures and these monster movies and stuff. So, you know, maybe they learned a lesson or something like that. I I don't know. Who's to say like what could have been if they did Frankenstein in color next, you know, I mean, we're never going to, we won't know, but I'm glad we have at least one of these that they did like a one-off. They took a shot, they tried. And for whatever reason, they went back to black and white and they went back to that formula. Um, I certainly would have loved to have seen another take at the Phantom from them, but I guess I'm just going to have to rent that weird pseudo-sequel someday that we mentioned earlier in the show. I'll go back and get the name of that. Um, and that's it, you know? Um, it's it's a gorgeous-looking movie. It's just tonally not what I want from Phantom, but it's good for what it is. It's just not what I really want. Yeah, it, it makes me wish that Universal had held their monsters in higher esteem at the time. Like I said, this movie was very successful. You know, it, it made a shit ton of money, and it was nominated for five Oscars, one, two. And so it's not that it wasn't successful. It's just that for Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, they just didn't feel the need to put this much time and effort into those movies. And like, if, if, if only they had, we could have had some really beautiful film. In terms of them getting technically ambitious, I think the next thing that we're going to have to talk about is when they released Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D, you know, and that was a gimmick. That wasn't necessarily any great advancement in, in filmmaking technique. It was just, hey, we can shoot this in 3D. Between now and then, we're just going to have sort of low budget, you know, monster jams, which is fine by me. But, you know, like having this dropped in the middle makes me wish that they had just kept doing these in color. I guess that's the thing, too, is like, like talking about it this much now makes me feel like, you know, it seems so obvious we do at least one of each in color. We do a Frankenstein, a mummy and a wolfman in color because they all have such fresh and different palettes to explore as far as color goes it would have been really nice to have some of that stuff but i'm still really happy with what we got and i hope i didn't come down too hard on this movie uh tonight or make it sound (laughs) like it's terrible because it's not you know it's just not not entirely my cup of tea on this monster journey that we're on yeah totally no i think i'm right there with you i had to to put it in my ranking somewhere and you know i I, i'll be honest with you i had to put it towards the bottom and it's really just because it doesn't work as a monster movie for me and it doesn't do anything well enough to make me like excited to put this one on it's 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 okay it's fine some things are really great but overall the, the stuff that doesn't work drags the average down a bit and it's just not something i ever really feel excited to watch most of the time so yeah i mean just by virtue of that i tend to rank it 
lower on my list, but it is by no means um, bad, you know, and I think we, we showed how much we appreciate the things that we like about this movie. So, all right. Well, with that, I think it's time for us to slink back down into the shadows, but we'll be back on Friday, April 29th for Lon Chaney Jr.'s turn as our favorite bloodsucker in 1943's Son of Dracula. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us, and you can email us at TheMonstersThatMadeUs at gmail.com. Please email us. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you want us to talk about. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. Mike, where can listeners find you? You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore Mikester, and you can hear all the other shows I'm on at CageClub.me, Facebook.com slash CageClub, or at CageClubPod on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. That will help other people discover the show and, and give us a bigger audience. And we can't forget about our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody. 